0: It's time for your favourite film podcast. Yes, it's this week's episode of The Film File. The film show for film geeks by, yep, those film geeks. Not these film geeks, but those film geeks. Those film geeks. We're hiring two extras. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And as we record this, we're melting. Not in a Wizard of Oz style, but in the, uh, uh, well, the heat wave that is uh, taking over the UK right now. I had some American friends over at the weekend and they went, yeah, this is kind of an average sort of summer's day for us, but boy, boy, it's hot.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, you yeah, know, the good weather's come because Boris has left. It's, it's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> we finally got those sunny hinterlands.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, that might just be a huge coincidence, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that. I know it's not entertainment news, but the big news this week in the UK was that Boris, after seeing member after member after member of his party resign, 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 he finally took the hint
0: and uh, handed his own notice in. Uh, Kinda though, didn't he? he? He sort of resigned without saying the word resignation ever. Yeah, well, well he, he's he's never said the right words for
1: anything ever. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's completely on. on character for him. But uh, did you see the news reports? Uh, This kind of links with entertainment because Hugh Grant, comedy genius, he tweeted out that the protesters who were outside the Commons, like, blaring out things and like, on bullhorns and things, he suggested that they should play the Benny Hill theme throughout the day. (laughs) And so they did, which resulted in interviews with members of the House of Commons... Talking about the people who've resigned, having Yakety Sax playing behind it, go, <laughs> which makes for someone talking about like, our now 14 members have resigned today." It's utter like, oh, to hilarity. It was perfection. Hugh Grant, man, that guy is an absolute legend.
0: I, f- I follow him on Twitter. He's great. I mean, he's re- he's really, really, really great. He's a, a national treasure. Absolutely. Uh, what what a brilliant idea. Uh, you know, we're not a political show. We've got our politics, which I think we, we wear quite clearly on our, on our armbands. And it's got a big smiley face on it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, it, it did stand out. I was supposed to be doing some work at home. And I got a text from my missus going, uh, put the TV on, uh, and, which I did. And I, I was glued. I was absolutely glued to the TV throughout that morning. It was, it was kind of um, history in the making. Um, one of those things. Where were you when type moments? But yeah, yeah. Um, really powerful stuff. And uh, you know, you want to be part of at least an observer to history as it's going on. So needless said, I didn't get as much work done as as I should because I was absolutely uh, entranced by it. all You couldn't write it if you did. It would all feel like a big political uh, mess. But hey, welcome to the UK. On completely separate notes. Can we talk about the Gentle Minions fad? Yeah. Now, I knew nothing about this Minions thing until I had the radio on, and there was one of those phone-in things on, on Radio 2 uh, they were going on about it. And I thought, hey, I've missed this. And also, what I thought was quite strange, I'd not been asked to comment on it. So fill us in.
1: Yeah, so a TikTok fad called Hashtag Gentle Minions started up, which encouraged people to ironically go and watch The Minions film dressed in suits and yelling and shouting and taking photos and TikToking each other in the screens and like, you know, throwing bananas up in the air, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the kind of interactivity that something like, yeah, something that we need to deep dive at some point, Rocky Horror Picture Show has on its screenings. But that's earned that kind of interactivity from the cult fan Uh base that has built it up. Minions certainly hasn't. And what's happened is that cinemas have been finding screens getting trashed. They've had people throwing banana skins at the screens themselves, which stains and damages the screens and can be quite costly and generally causing a disturbance. Cinemas have been having to issue out refunds to other guests who've, enjoyment of the film, if you can enjoy a Minions film, has been disrupted by, you know, idiots. Let's be honest. Idiots who are jumping onto a TikTok fad. Now, across the UK, some cinema chains started banning people with suits, which I think is a bit extreme. A a group turn up with suits. You can't just say, well, you can't come in and watch any film today. You know, give them a warning. We've had a few um, down in Banbury who came in dressed in suits and we just advised them as they were going, we well, get what you're doing, do what you want out here, take photos out here, but once you're in the screen, if any of your phones come out, you're getting removed from the building. Oh no, 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 we're just here to have fun. It's like, yep, yeah, just don't disrupt it for anyone else. And they've been well behaved once they've gone in. Because okay. We tackled it as they've been going through. Banning people from going in with suits, mm, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction, wasn't it? But the worst thing about this whole fact is that According to sources, this originated as a marketing ploy
0: by Universal themselves. You've just answered my next question. In fact, you've, you've uh, uh, telepathically preempted what I was going to ask. So that's the rumor that I heard that this was a marketing ploy from uh, uh, the studio. But yep. I, I, I didn't get anything when I was doing my own little bit of an investigation because I read a couple of different sources, but it seemed to point out. This was a, a, a planned marketing exercise from universal okay so they'll have yep. got the hits from it but has it now seriously backfired they certainly did uh, and this is why they were encouraging it from
1: their official social media channels for the opening weekend but now they've uh, kind of backtracked and started to say like tell people not to get along in it but the thing is they've basically kick-started this gentle minions fad which was clearly a marketing decision to go All the people who wouldn't go to see Minions, maybe if we can convince them some way to go and see it, ironically. So all the people who've jumped into it, because people on TikTok, one person does one thing and everyone feels that they need to be part of it. Uh And this this might explain why Minions did such phenomenal business over its opening weekend. But all you TikTokers out there, and if anyone out there is a TikToker and jumps on these fads, well done, because you ironically got played by Universal. You got played, absolutely played. They knew exactly what they were doing. They got your money and you have just joined in their marketing routine. It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm on TikTok. I'm not going to deny that I'm on TikTok, but I don't follow the fads. Why follow fads? Grow up, get your own personality, do your own thing, have fun, but don't ruin cinema going experiences for everyone else.
0: Yeah, well said. I mean, there's nothing that winds me up, as you know, more than, uh, you know, Paying good money to go and see a movie, only to be disturbed by some uh, knobhead.
1: This is a family film. This is mm. family audiences. So, you know, y- your behavior is in front of children. You're acting like that in front of children. What kind of message are you sending to the children of the world when you think that it's fun to disrupt performances and act like idiots just so you can get like, a couple of clicks of likes on your TikTok feed? Grow up, all you TikTok generation.
0: Well, well, sadly though, Andy, it's not 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 our audience. I'm pretty much guessing.
1: Oh, this is where we get loads of emails, and it's like, who do you think you're talking to, you boomer? <laughs> <laughs> Officially, not a boomer. Ha <laughs> ha.
0: That'd be me. And I don't care.
1: Generation X here. Boom. Um... <laughs> I've been called a boomer a few times and I've thrown that straight back. It's just like, yeah, Generation X, I'm an X-man, boom. <laughs> but yeah, TikTok, TikTok generation falling into marketing fads. And this is just a problem that's happening with loads of companies now are starting to jump on to the social media fads themselves. And they they are generating this kind of, I think it's negative marketing. Yes, it does good business for them. But it impacts negatively on the cinema experience and it impacts negatively on the people showing your films. So Universal, you're just as bad as the TikTokers. Please never do something like this again, you silly, silly fools. And I've got to go on a completely separate note here. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah you, you
0: tangent off, buddy.
1: I'm tangenting everywhere today because uh, there's been quite a few, few things it's that happened this week. the isn't
0: it? The heat's making and
1: you tangent. this And uh, this one is to do with me, me lovely mum, who uh, even though she retired a couple of years ago, she's been doing some work for the theatre uh, like doing ushering in theatres and she was ushering of the Jimmy Carr gig I think it was the St. Helens gig last week and she yeah. made the mistake of responding when he asked questions and right. so she became the butt, butt of his jokes for quite a substantial amount of it I saw this tour back before like all the lockdowns hit it uh, when he started off talking about like you know COVID it's going to help help all the pension crisis uh, well he's done it with like um, the Kerr Homes like crisis has been sorted thanks to COVID. And then they said, like, is anyone over the age of 60 in the audience today? And my mum thought that other, loads of other people would respond and she just, like, watches us and goes, over here. And so, like, he, he interacted with her, got a name, Pat, Pat. So every time he was doing a joke about dementia, anything to do with, like, failing health, <laughs> he kept saying, is Pat still okay? Pat, are you still there? All the way through it, and She's, she's always found him quite funny when she's watching on TV, but never saw his live thing. Now she wants to go and see him um, next time he's gigging in Sheffield. She wants me to get a ticket because she absolutely loved that level of interactivity and being the butt of the jokes. I think Fantastic. it's great.
0: Right, that's what going to comedy shows is all about. You can watch them on Netflix, but being in that yeah. audience, being in that room, I've not been to a comedy gig in ages. Absolutely ages.
1: Yeah, well, I think my last one was Jimmy Carr. Right. For the comedy gigs. So, oh, oh I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the day when I can manage to get
0: victimised by him. I'm more than happy for that. <laughs> <laughs> but this show isn't all about comedy gig anecdotes. This show's about film. And this week, what have we got for you? Well, Andy and I both been to see Thor Love and Thunder, and we'll be giving you our thoughts on that later in the show. And interestingly, we don't even know each other's thoughts on it. No, we no, not yet. Oh, we could go all. either way. This could be an interesting And no hints. (laughs) And he's going to also be talking about... I'll also be
1: talking about Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe, which landed on Paramount Plus. Okay. And
0: The Sea Beast, which landed on Netflix. We've got this week's deep dive into Michael Mann's 1995 heist movie, Heat, which seems appropriate in this weather. Very very apt. (laughs) But before any of that, we've got the news. And welcome to the segment we like to call Colin, also known as (laughs) news. And uh, um, I'm glad you remembered that. (laughs) I remembered that one. And we're going to start with, as we normally do, the box office. So in the world of the box office, I'm pretty much guessing that Thor, Love and Thunder is now at the top spot. Yes so let's start with the US where Thor Love and Thunder opened
1: this weekend with 143 million which is the strongest opening for a Thor film but not significantly high for what the expectations were. Uh, Minions Rise of Gru takes second place with 45.6 million. Top Gun Maverick is still flying high there in third place with 15.5 million. Elvis is on 11 million and Jurassic World Dominion took another 8.4 million. Top Gun now, worldwide, is rapidly approaching 1.2 billion. Incredible. Which is absolutely stunning. Minions is currently worldwide, just approaching 400 million. Whilst Jurassic World seems to be settling. It looks like it will finish around about 910 million at this rate worldwide. It's on at 876 at the moment. But Thor, Love and Thunder worldwide, 302 million, which is uh, internationally, it's, uh, it's done okay. It's done okay. What the drop-off's going to be, because we've seen big drop-offs on Marvel films of the recent months. And it's going to be interesting to see whether this can
0: sustain it, especially with the rather mixed opinions that are coming out from there. Which you'll get to find our opinions uh, a little bit later. But I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. So, if Thor Love and Thunder uh, has done pretty good, and you're saying it's the the top entry on the Thor movies, yes. um, in the scheme of things... Uh, where does it stand on the MCU now? Do some math. 10th or 11th, I'm saying. Yeah,
1: I, I believe it's 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 within the top 10 openers for the MCU, but it, it's whether it's going to have that sustainability. Here in the UK, Thor opened with 12.3 million, including the Thursday previews, which is better, again, than Thor Ragnarok did. However, it's significantly behind Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, which did 14.9 million in its opening three days. Minions, still generating family audiences, 4.3 million this weekend, up to 18.5 million total for the UK. Elvis in third place with another 1.3 million added. Top Gun, again, not dying down at all. It's it's still flying around. 1 million taken this weekend. It's up to 70.6 million from the UK. And uh, Jurassic World, 559,000 it took this weekend. It's definitely slowing down. People have had enough of the dinosaurs now.
0: And you've got to take into account that we've had crazy hot weather this weekend. And and that usually in the UK does have an impact on, on yes. cinemas because we all have a tendency not to go uh, because we think this is uh, only going to be here for a week. And basically we try and spend as much time in the sun as possible. I did hear that while Thor's done really well across the world, these numbers in Australia are kind of off the charts. and I think maybe uh, that might be down to... Taika Waititi, and the fact that they've got a homegrown star with Chris Hemsworth.
1: Yeah, in Australia, it took $13.8 million, which was a pretty strong opening for them. I've seen discussions in the trades over this past week with regards, particularly Disney releases, either Marvel, Pixar, or whatever, which we've seen them have decent opening weekends and then significant drop-offs. Where And we've touched on this, but not really discussed around it. Disney might have a problem with their release model, particularly the fact that people now know that six weeks down the line, you can watch it for free on streaming. And I wouldn't be surprised if this gets reviewed because um, Doctor Strange is close to 1 billion but it's slowed down so much it's unlikely to pass that figure and they well, were expecting to watch one... it on
0: Disney plus
1: yeah they were expecting at 1.1 1. 1 billion on that one at least so that the underperformance of Lightyear which a Pixar film should have done better than what it's performed yeah. and everything on the Disney model looks like people are just basically
0: going uh I'll just wait for home now which it's not what they want to be getting no no absolutely not you want uh, you want to be able to hang this out i wouldn't uh, wouldn't be at all surprised if disney very very quickly review their model yeah cuz hey if we can figure it out then they can you know? yeah
1: <laughs> so that's where the box office is at the moment we'll see how next week impacts on Thor, whether it sustains business, whether the mixed word of mouth makes it decline significantly, or whether
0: whether it is just the hot weather that are keeping people away. Okay, so that takes us in quite nicely into the rest of the news. Andy, what have you got? So let's stick with Marvel.
1: Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio are definitely set to reprise their roles for the upcoming Echo series, which is currently filming in Atlanta.
0: We've already heard word that Marvel are going to produce a, a Daredevil series anyway for Disney+. Plus, So um, we always kind of figured that, that Daredevil was going to appear in Echo. So it, it feels like this news has been out there for some time. Yeah, it's just that we finally got a confirmation on it. And we knew that Vincent D'Enferio wasn't dead at the end of Hawkeye.
1: Yeah, when a camera pans away when someone's getting offed, you know that that person's not dead. Yeah. Unless you see that bullet go through and the brain splat on the pavement in a Marvel thing. A bit excessive, really. But yeah, I that would point. be a bit excessive for a Marvel <laughs> thing. But you, you get my point. Um, I think it's great because I'm not completely convinced that Echo herself is a strong enough character to be carried. But that's because I'm not completely well-versed in that character. But I do think that the direct links to The Kingpin means that it makes it for a much more interesting story. And throwing Daredevil in there, it's the chance for them to bring Daredevil properly into the MCU. We saw him briefly in Spider-Man No Way Home. But apparently Echo will reportedly include a plot line in which Daredevil is searching out a former ally. Podcast The Weekly Planet has reported that that ally is Jessica Jones. So it's possible that this Echo series is going to be the MCU's way of bringing all of the Netflix aspects into their like universe
0: officially so you've seen then on disney plus that jessica jones has been renamed i didn't even notice that no. it's now called which was the original title for the series okay so to go back even further when marvel published jessica jones for its max imprint which was it's, its their vertigo you know the, uh, an adult take on some of their characters it was called alias and of course yeah. the The series came out Alias, which had nothing to do with Jessica Jones. So when there was an initial proposed series, it was called AKA Jessica Jones, which kind of took care of the the alias. So but when the series finally landed on Netflix, it just got shortened to Jessica Jones. Anyway, Disney Plus, check this out for yourself, are billing the show as AKA jessica jones which has all started all kind of speculation that uh there is going to be a new jessica jones series uh who knows at this stage uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's not on the cards and i certainly wouldn't say that it's off the cards the, the way we're going the other rumor that i'm hearing is that they want to bring back luke cage uh they want to bring back iron fist but in this particular case they're going to recast
1: <laughs> which i think is a shame I, I think i'm the only person on the planet but i didn't dislike iron fist I thought it was a slow burner, but by the end of the first series, it hooked me. Yeah, it was it was
0: okay, and that was the problem with it. It was okay, and it took a long time. And I think that was apparent in all the Netflix series. It, it, everything took a long time to resolve. Ten, thirteen episodes were far too much. Yeah, boiling it down to eight, and you'd have got uh, an absolutely stonking series on everything. And I loved the, the the first series of Daredevil, and then the first season of Jessica Jones was was, was brilliant. But they all had a tendency to outstay their welcome, uh, and that that was the problem for it. Yeah,
1: I want to see them all get back together. I want I want to see the MCU grow on that street level era, and I want I want to see some great, more great shows because I am enjoying the shows from Marvel at the moment. Still digging Miss Marvel. Still digging Miss Marvel. Very
0: clever what they've done with it. Where they've gone?
1: Yeah, it's it's so smart and it's so likable and it's it's so engaging and. It's uh, educational at the same time. Which, it is. I, it is.
0: She's an absolute <laughs> charm. Uh, I can't remember her name. Iman Velari. Full on out of 10. She's, she's turned it up to 11 charm. I mean, it helps that she's an actual
1: uh, comic book geek herself yeah. in real life. Uh, she's great to watch in interviews, as you can see how enthusiastic she is and how knowledgeable she is about comic book history and law. She is clearly a comic book geek. Yeah. Uh, sticking with uh, Marvel and Cloverfield Paradox director Julius Ona is going to direct the next yeah, Captain America film this land. We, we knew it was going to be coming we just didn't know who was going to be directing Anthony Mackie will reprise the role of Sam Wilson the new Captain America Malcolm Spellman who was head writer and creator of Falcon and Winter Soldier series is penning the script alongside his collaborator Dallin Musum. so it's going to have quite solid links with the Falcon and Winter Soldier series
0: Right. So talking of Captain America, or well, we weren't, but we're talking about Chris Evans. He has joined Emily Blunt in a new drama called Pain Hustlers. You know about this one? I've not heard about that one. So it's a new drama. As I said, it stars uh, Chris Evans and Emily Blunt. And it's directed by the Harry Potter veteran, uh, David Yates. Uh, Written by Wells Tower, the story here focuses on Liz Drake, played by Blunt, a high school dropout, dreaming of a better life for herself and her young daughters, who lands a job with a failing pharmaceutical startup in a yellowing strip mall in central Florida. Lisa's charms, guts, and drive catapult the company and her into the high life where she soon finds herself at the center of a criminal conspiracy with deadly consequences, and filming should start to kick off around august time
1: sounds like an interesting film to keep a lookout for
0: yeah because we get the gray man with chris evans yeah. uh next weekend
1: yep i forgot i've forgotten all about the gray man absolutely yeah, we're getting it on to get a cinema release first
0: for it, isn't there on um... yeah it's
1: getting a limited cinema release so there'll be a chance to get that watched can i can i just can i just get ridiculously giddy again as a yeah please do it, it
0: it's 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 your show andy
1: as i get excited again for greta gerwig's barbie movie <laughs>
0: It'd be rude for you not to at this stage.
1: Marissa Abela from Industry is the latest person to join the ever-expanding cast. You know, we already have Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferreira, Emma McKee, Kate McKinnon, Simu Liu, Will Ferrell, Issa Ray, Shootie Gatwa, Kingsley Benedier, Alexandra Shipp and Emerald Fennell. We don't know who Abella's going to be playing because no details of the character has been disclosed. Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach have wrote and are currently filming around California, which we've seen some marvellous, marvellously garish shots for. And I I just get more and more excited. I think I'm not the target audience for this film.
0: I don't know. It sounds like it, Andy. You're not talking yourself out of it.
1: I've become the target audience for this film because I just think... I it's because I'm so interested to see what Gerwig is doing with a Barbie film. Is it going to be tongue in cheek, self-referential? Is it going to be a satire of consumerism? We don't know. It might literally just be a Barbie film and I might end up sat there with like loads of like 10 year old girls and me getting as giddy as them watching it on the screen. I don't know. But it's just the names involved in this make it for something that it's clearly got to be the film of 2023. Let's be honest.
0: I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the first trailer on it.
1: Co-star Mackie has spoken with Empire about the film recently and revealed that the production is fun with the premise as right in the beginning, we had a sleepover for the Barbies, which would involve playing games with Scott Evans and Shooty Gatwa. Said games included table tennis. And she says that tonally, the film is light, funny, silly, American
0: and pink. <laughs> yeah, and well, we can judge some of that from the um, from the... <laughs> stills that we've seen so far. There's lots of pink. Do you know what the last film I saw was before lockdown? Before the cinemas closed? I think it was at two o'clock or something like that. What was it that you watched? It was Parasite. That was my last film before the world went quiet. Anyway, Bong Joon-hun uh, has been building an excellent cast, which includes Robert Patterson, and has now signed on uh, Steve Yoon for his next writing and directing project. An adaptation, which I didn't know, of Edward Ashton's sci-fi novel, Mickey Seven. Story follows, titular Mickey Seven, who is an expandable, a disposable employee of a human expedition, sent to colonise the Iceworld Nifhelm. Whatever, there's a mission that's too dangerous, even suicidal the crew turned to Mickey. After one iteration dies, a new Mickey is regenerated with most of his memories intact. After six deaths, Mickey Seven understands the terms of the deal and why it was the only colonial position unfulfilled when he took it. So, interesting stuff. I like his forays into science fiction and to Mm. some extent, there was almost an otherworldly quality to Parasite but it's looking like a great cast so far as I said Patterson he's got uh, Naomi Aki Mark Ruffalo and Tony Collette on board
1: Bong Joon-ho is always a director that I'm interested in watching ever since in 2006 when I saw the host I've always looked out for his films Uh, you know he's given us Okia which um, got released on Netflix to great critical acclaim Snow Piercer, which I, I wasn't overly enamored with the film. I loved the style of it. I just felt that there was more story, which thankfully the TV series is dragging out. Parasite blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Yeah. I'm there. I'm there day one for that film. Cool. Netflix is going to stick around with the Stranger Things creators Matt and Ross Duffer. They'd be foolish not to. Those guys know how to make them money. They certainly do. They certainly know how to create buzz and uh, they certainly know how to use Metallica tracks in um,
0: an episode (laughs) i'm so far behind i'm telling you on (laughs) strange things so far i'm just two episodes in and you've really because the season's episode lengths are so long you've really just got to give yourself a good evening to go right i'm not watching anything else this is it
1: well they have promised that the the final season in two years time um will have shorter episodes than this season which you know had some one hour 20 and one hour 30 episodes they were like mini movies but Man, they were engrossing. But uh, the pair have recently launched their own production company called Upside Down Pictures, of course they have, and they've outlined plans for several high-profile projects. One of them is going to be an adaptation of the Japanese manga Death Note, which is going to be completely unconnected to Adam Wingard's 2017 live-action film, which was critically panned unfairly, I think. I think people went in expecting a direct adaptation of the manga and it wasn't. It was a it was Americanized alternate take on the tale. I enjoyed it for what it was, but this is going to be an entirely new take on the source material from writer Sugumi Oba and artist Takeshi Obata. And the manga follows a teenager who discovers a black notebook that winds up providing him with power over life and death. But also, and this is where it gets very exciting, the Duffers are going to be working on the adaptation of Stephen King and Peter Straub's 1984 novel, The Talisman. Ooh.
0: Uh, where you were going as soon as you said it? Well, that's been in the in the stratosphere for an awful long time. I remember Steven Spielberg being connected to it.
1: Yeah, it's it's gone from hand to hand. But anyone who's read The Talisman, if you've watched Stranger Things, you will see exactly what the Duffers will be bringing to the talisman because it's got that same kind of vibe, same kind of feel. The story, for those who've never read the talisman, follows a young man who moves between New Hampshire and an alternate world called the Territories to obtain an artefact that will save his mother's life. Amblin Entertainment and Paramount Television are going to produce it. So finally, we might get to see the talisman on screen. Maybe once the talisman's been done, maybe, just maybe, someone will properly adapt the Dark Tower.
0: Well, it's, again, been on the cards for like, ever.
1: There's been uh, three other projects also confirmed. A new Stephen Daldry-directed stage play set within the world of mythology of Stranger Things, the the aforementioned spin-off of that massive show, and an original series from Dark Crystal Age of Resistance duo Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews. So it looks like the Duffer's upside-down pictures has already got some pretty high-profile projects. Yeah, to start selling back to Netflix. If Netflix don't want them, I'm pretty sure anyone else will pay them a fortune to take them. Yeah, too right. We've also got news that Alex Garland might give up directing.
0: Okay, I mean, he's made a, a pretty good start at it so far. I mean, uh, out of three, I'd put two at the top of uh, uh, anybody's list. Yep, Ex Machina definitely at the top of yeah, like, yeah. all of his projects.
1: But it might not be a permanent thing. In an interview recently with Screen Daily, he's revealed he's just wrapped filming his next project called Civil War, which will, in his words, definitely be his last film as a director for at least a while. His reason, it's actually wants to return back to his writing roots. As he said, I've got got a quite complicated but serious internal dialogue about what I'm going to do next. Years ago, I started out as a novelist and then stopped writing novels and started working in film. And I've been feeling quite strongly that I should stop directing films and should write for other people with the intention of trying to execute the film that they want to make rather than trying to force through the film I want to make which is what used to happen in the old days. Now, big fans of Alex Garland's writing through the years. There's a lot of the films that we will discuss as deep dives that Alex Garland's name has been tagged to, and we discussed one of them last week. So I don't necessarily think that this is a bad thing because he is a great writer. I just feel that when he brings his own things to the screen, occasionally he hits it right, ex machina, but men kind of miss the mark. So maybe him working with other directors again Will manage to get some absolute smashes of sci-fi.
0: The the thing I've always liked about his work is it's it's almost that uh, a new generation kind of stuff where he borrows from previous sources. I mean, you could look at Twenty Eight Days Later as being influenced by Day of the Triffids, or you can see X Match and its source has been in so many other science fiction movies. But he always brings something unique to those those um, elements. Yeah, he ties into into sort of uh, geek culture or, or uh, literary culture and then brings his own spin onto it. So I, I like his work. I, I've not got to see the men yet so that's that's still to be hashed out. Like we said, he's currently putting the finishing touches onto his Civil War
1: which is a contemporary war movie which stars Kirsten Dunst, Vagnamora, Stephen McKinley-Henderson and Kaylee Spaney and a- A24 are expecting to release it later this year. Okay. Quick news on Candyman remake writer, director Neda Costa is going to pen and helm a reimagining of Henrik Ibsen's famous play, Hedda Gabler, for Orion Pictures and Plan B. The story of this follows a woman as she navigates a house she does not want, a marriage she feels trapped in, and an ex-lover who has reappeared in her life.
0: I have seen one one of the interpretations of that way, way back then.
1: There is another bit of news, but it actually ties in nicely to our deep dive later, so we'll fill it
0: in later yes, in the show. Yes, and I think I know what that story is. Sadly, we hate having to do this, but uh, it's when we talk about the passing, and not just one passing this week. Uh, we've got three, and first up, we're going to be talking about the passing of Lenny Van Dolan. Now, probably potentially not a name that you're going to recognize, but you'll certainly recognize his contribution to a couple of, of absolutely genre classics. Uh, first up, he was a star of Electric Dreams, uh, probably best known for appearing in Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks fire Walk with me right up to his passing just the other day at the age of 63 which is no age whatsoever. He kept working but apparently indeed been ill for some time. Yeah, he's been
1: struggling over the past few years with health issues and slowly declining and 63 is definitely no time to go. I remembered him from Electric Dreams because I watched yeah. that when I was young but he really impacted on me in Twin Peaks. As playing Harold Smith. Harold, the reclusive orchid grower. Yeah. He becomes quite key to some of the secrets of Laura Palmer's death. He's got a presence on screen. He's got a presence in everything he does, but it was a very unassuming presence. Yeah, And he kind of got typecast into that unassuming role, never getting a chance to really be a leading man after Electric Dreams, which I think is a shame because there was a lot that he could have offered. You might have seen him over recent years as well or recent decades. In TV shows such as The Equalizer, CSI Miami, Lazarus Man and Chicago Hope, where he popped up from time to time playing various characters. Sad loss, and like we say,
0: 63 is no age to go. And following that, again, sad news. Uh, and uh, somebody who absolutely made an impact within the series that he's probably best known for. Tony Sikoro this last week, who will be forever ingrained into our heads as poorly Walnuts. Galtieri in The Sopranos. Uh, The guy with the wings appeared in one of my favourite ever uh, Sopranos episodes, uh, which was just based around his character and Christopher out in the woods. And it was just simply a brilliant piece of of character interplay and and, and tension and drama. Absolutely fantastic screen presence. But it wasn't only in The Sopranos, was he, Andy?
1: No, he made his name for himself with appearances In Woody Allen films Uh, he was in Bullets Over Broadway, Mighty Aphrodite, Wonder Wheel but he also from the 90s onwards started to pop up and started to fill that gangster aspect that led to The Sopranos in films such as Goodfellas, he was in Copland, he was in Dead Presidents, he also took a foray into comedy with films such as Mickey Blue Eyes but like you say the character of Paulie in The Sopranos is what everyone remembers him mostly for because The Sopranos was so good at giving us characters that even though they are utter scumbags, yeah. you absolutely love them and you root for them and you hope for the best for them. It was masterful storytelling through The Sopranos throughout all of its seasons, and it made you care for every one of them. And Paulie, whenever he was on screen, the character of Paulie, you knew something fun was going to happen because he had, he, he had a, an ignorant wit, It's basically, he would say things that are amusing without realising that they're amusing because he takes everything ultra serious. Brilliant character portrayed by a marvellous actor, 79 years old. He's left behind
0: a legacy of work that is well worth revisiting. And of course, we can't talk about sad losses without having to mention James Caan, who passed away this week, who was an incredible screen presence going right back to the beginning of his career with his what well, you could if you were on screen with John Wayne and Robert Mitchum and still shine, then you just proved what uh, an actor and what a personality you are. When he was in uh, 1966 movie El Dorado, uh, then Countdown, which is a, a, an early space race movie. The Ring People from Francis Ford Coppola. But of course, it was the Godfather that put him on the map delivered one of the most fantastic screen performances with one scene in particular, one very famous scene ad-libbed, but he was a, uh, an amazing actor. I can I can list some of my favourite all-time roles other than The Godfather, Freebie and the Bean, uh, mm. Slither. He was excellent in The Gambler and and never didn't have, in, in his in his lifetime, a uh, uh, turn in a bad performance. Even if it was in Dick Tracy or in, in Alien Nation, he was... Uh, Always, always phenomenal.
1: Yeah, um, he was also in my favourite director's first film, uh, Bottle Rocket. Again, he was someone who was in Mickey Blue Eyes because it seems that everyone who has anything to do with gangsters was in Mickey Blue Eyes. But I think for me, the one that first made me sit up and take notice of him and then go back and seek out his other works was uh, the adaptation of Stephen King's Misery, where he played Paul Sheldon. And the interplay between him and Kathy Bates through that film is tense, engaging, and both of them are on perfect form through it. There's a film that we're going to deep
0: dive at some point. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to, to finding your own personal favourite James Carr performance, I, I had a go for the show in advance and, and I just couldn't, you know. Um, misery, Rollerball, uh, Michael Mann's first film, uh, Thief, which he was just absolutely brilliant and was the first of that kind of neo noir. Uh, style of of uh, uh, thriller, absolutely amazing. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it was Mister Henry, wasn't he? He played in uh, in Bottle Rocket. Yes, he was. He was one of those actors who you
1: couldn't you couldn't typecast as he does this genre because he literally dipped his toe in everything. Yeah, he's done an- animated movies, Cloudy with a Chance with a Chance of Meatballs one and two. He's done comedies like Elf, Get Smart. He's done dramas. He's done horror. He's done gangland everything he's done every aspect of every genre and he was always someone
0: to watch in anything that he was in his name was circulated way back in the 70s as being uh, one of the actors they wanted to play superman couldn't ever see him play superman but you could see the considerable amount of talent that he would have brought to the screen and, and and did in many many different films and as andy said in many many different genres he played against it all he will be sadly sadly missed and that's james khan who passed away aged 82 and that is this week's the news you're listening to the film file your film podcast your favorite film podcast all about film and geekery with myself lee ford and ever joined by andy meekin and if you're a fan this particular episode and you're a fan of this particular podcast and you want to know more head over to your favorite podcast platform check out the film file subscribe and remember to leave a like and that's not all because if you want to become part of the film file movement and it is a movement and it's growing all you have to do is this head on over to twitter follow us
1: at film file uk Uh, head on over to other social media channels including tiktok Yes, including TikTok, because I, I jump on fads. Just look for Film File UK, you'll find us. Or you can email us with any thoughts, suggestions, top 10 lists, bottom 10 lists, favourite films, least favourite films, suggestions for deep dives, recipes for cakes, anything that you want to send us, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or as we've suggested before, we'll be your agony uncles. Have you got a problem that you need film geeks to fix? Just email us and we will see what we can do. Because we're always giving, aren't we, Andy? Always, we're
0: always, always giving. giving. Always giving.
1: No, we never get a chance to take because no one ever gives us, but, you know... We give. We give.
0: <laughs> it's now time for this week's Deep Dive. And in a week in the UK where we're sweltering, then, strangely enough, this film seems really, really apt. We're going to be talking about Michael Mann's 1995 heist thriller starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. We're going to be talking about Heat. You want
1: to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner.
0: In the city of Los Angeles... recognize the M.O.? M.O. is that they're good. If you think these guys are scoring once and passing through, I doubt it. A relentless police detective is on the trail... What do we got? ...of a master thief.
1: You're fugitive number one with a bullet. It's double the risk here. You're wrong. It's four times the risk. And I'm double the worst trouble you ever had. Critter!
0: Now, for the first time, Academy Award winner Al Pacino and Academy Award winner Robert De Niro collide. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I'll tell you. You are going down. What if you do got me boxed in and I got to put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. I will not hesitate for a second. So he, a 1995 American crime drama, which featured not only two of the biggest acting names of our generation, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, and also an ensemble cast that included Tom Sizemore, John Voigt, Val Kilmer, and a very young Natalie Portman along with names such as Danny
1: Trejo, William Fitchner, Jerry Piven, Henry Rollins, Ashley Judd, Hank Azaria. I mean, this is a stacked cast. Tom Noonan, who'd worked with Michael Mann on Manhunter, is
0: also in there. So the film follows the conflict between an LAPD detective played by Pacino and a career thief played coolly by Robert De Niro while depicting its efforts on their professional relationship and their personal lives. It's probably best known for one of the most brilliantly choreographed and bizarrely accurate shootout scenes that I think has ever been depicted on the screen. And if anything's been done better, then this was the game changer. It's a long film. It's a film that is intricate and detailed into the lives of two guys who are both at the outside of their own professional lives. Depending on, I think, depending on your point of view, you you're drawn to either one of the the characters and becomes your lead character. And for me, it was always the Robert De Niro, Neil McCauley character who was the most intriguing. But I have a lot of time for this film. And uh, I've, I've not gone back and watched it as Andy has because Michael Mann has this tendency to play with his own work and recut it. And it's one of those films that, for me, plays so well in my memory that I don't want to see a changed version. But Andy, you got to watch it again quite recently. I did, yes.
1: The film is inspired by a real-life detective, uh, Chuck Adamson, which Al Pacino's character is largely based upon, was chasing one particular villain, Neil Macaulay, which is who Robert De Niro's character is named after. Whilst it doesn't actually follow the events of real life, it was inspired by this one man who was determined to take down one career criminal. And there's other people involved in the film, other characters involved in the film, which are inspired by real-life criminals. And this is what Man does so well. He takes the inspiration. John Voight's character is based on Ed, Eddie Bunker, who served as a consultant to Man on the film. This is another one of those films that, and this I say this very often, that it's been a couple of decades since I last saw it. I mean, it's got to be the late 90s on home release when I properly last watched it. I've caught clips of it when I've been flicking through the channels yeah, on TV. About the same
0: for me, Andy, to be honest.
1: But I'd not sat down from start to finish, and i particularly not sat down from start to finish with the now standard version that you get, which is the director's extended 170 minutes version. And this was the first time that I watched it. And because it's been so long since I watched the film, I couldn't tell you exactly what was different in that 170 minutes. And I think that's a good thing because I didn't detect anything that had been shoehorned in that should have left cut. I found from the start to finish, I was engrossed with it this time round, as I was that very first time they caught it. And what engrosses me about this film is not only does it start off quite hot with some great action, it draws you into two separate lives. Like you say, you try to decide which one you want to root for, the career cop or the career criminal and it plays both of them equally. It's not a story of a cop taking down a criminal. It's a story of a criminal trying to outwit a cop at the same time. Both sides of the story are given chance to flesh out their characters, flesh out their family life, their backgrounds, their histories, their relationships, and make you care for both sides. And by the time it comes to the now iconic coffee shop scene, you are are on the edge of your seat as to where this is going to go. It's a marvellous film, marvellous structure from start to finish to slow itself down significantly, but then pick itself up and keep following beats. There's multiple sub-stories going on at the same time that never feel like they get in the way of the core story, and everyone is giving their all. Pacino in particular, if you watch the, if you watch the film, you'll notice that his character is uh, tends to go into strange shouty outbursts and eccentricisms, and that's because in the early part of the script, it said that he had a cocaine addiction right. because he's playing a cop who used to be undercover in um, the drug squad, and so he'd become addicted to cocaine. As we've heard from historical evidence and like you know documentaries, that a lot of undercover cops end up falling into patterns, and so Pacino drew on that, even though it got removed from the script later on he drew on that and says, no, I'm going to still play it that way. And that gives his character a kind of edge to it. And it makes it so that you're not always rooting for the cop because at times he comes across as unlikable because the cocaine is affecting
0: him. And that helps the film. And in in complete comparison to that, you've got De Niro really underplaying the role Mm. who's someone who's calm, forever calculating, even to the point when he, he falls in love and he has that tremendous line about being able to walk away from anything that you care about in Second's Flight when the heat goes down, so to speak. The, the history of this is quite an interesting one because there was a previous version of this entitled L.A. Takedown. So Mann wrote a 180-page draft of Heat, uh, which he, he wrote and rewrote after making Thief with James Caan in 1981, hoping to find a director to make it and still mention it publicly in promotional interviews for his World War II horror movie, The Keep. He offered the film to his friend, uh, the great Walter Hill, who turned it down. So, following the success of Miami Vice, his other TV series, Crime Story, man wanted to produce a new crime TV show for NBC. He turned in the script that would become Heat into a 90-minute pilot version of that featuring the los angeles police department robbery and homicide division it featured an actor called scott plank insert your own laugh line there in the role of hannah and alex macarthur who was kind of an up-and-coming young thing at the time playing the character of neil mccauley renamed in this to patrick mclaren uh the script was abridged down to almost a third of its original length omitting any of the subplots and any of the supporting characters the network were initially unhappy with Plank in the lead role and asked Mann to recast Hannah's role. Man declined. The show was cancelled and the pilot was aired in August 27th, 1989 under the title L.A. Takedown. I've seen this version. I've seen, uh, I think I must have seen a DVD or a VHS of this. Mm. And it, it's very strange because for most of it, the beats are exactly the same. Anyway, Manor decided in 1994 to shoot a biopic of uh, James Dean, but in, in favour of that, uh, he turned to finally getting round to directing Heat. And of course, the big draw of it and the way that the marketing was built for this film was having Pacino and De Niro, who'd been together, kind of, in The Godfather Part Two, but never, ever shared a scene. Keanu Reeves was originally cast in one of the supporting roles that ultimately went to Val Kilmer. And the rest is kind of history, and including the very famous L.A. takedown scene.
1: The film is well regarded for the action moments, the heist being so well planned, but in particular the weapons usage throughout the film. Ex-British Special Services Sergeant Andy McNabb, who has quite a lucrative career, make it churning out books, was a technical weapons trainer and advisor on it. And he went through extensive training with all the actors for three months using live ammunition before shooting with blanks to make the takes work and to make everything look authentic. Like these were trained professionals. These were experts. These were mercenaries who turned criminal. And also the police side of it, they were supposed to be you know top crack ops teams to take down career criminals. And so it needed to look right. And it looks so right that, Ever since the film came out, there were stories about how the US military would show moments from the film as part of the training on how to how to escape from combat, effectively, in the middle of a firefight, how to correctly carry and reload. Val Kilmer in particular had been singled out by quite a lot of people as being absolutely spot on with his weapons handling throughout the film. It's that level of detail that as a casual observer, as just a general cinema goer, you wouldn't pick up on but when you know about it when you watch it you start to notice how much more how much more efficient the weapons handling seems in this film than what it does in other generic action films and this is something that man was very good at he's always good at digging down into the fine detail that isn't actually necessary but it gives it a gritty realism it gives it a sense of believability
0: they've done the same had they on last of the mohicans for instance
1: Yeah, Man brings such a grounded realism to pretty much all of his films, which is what makes them engaging. Man also brings, and we've said this before when we've spoken about previous Man films, location. He loves locations. And he loves, particularly, the City of Lights, LA. And he showcases it in all its dirty beauty throughout this film. Cinematography from Dante Spinotti, who worked with him on pretty much everything. Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, then went on to Insider, Public Enemies. Ensures the location is as much of a character as the actual actors are on screen. Perfectly lit, engaging, well-placed shots. His use of the environment dominates the frame while the actors are off to the side. Usually the right-hand side is where he places the cast talking with cityscapes behind them. Man loves location. He loves cities. And he wants you, the audience, to love cities as well
0: with every shot that he makes. I mean, even describing the action sequence, this is not an action picture. The high scenes are meticulously directed, Um, but above all, this is a complex film with complex insightful dialogue that is necessarily in, in showing not just the professional lives but the home lives of, of these characters and that they're not trapped in some sort of heist cliche movie these are people who are are, who are articulate characters who mm. talk about what they feel and talk about what's going on in their world and the drama that brings to it and I think it's it's it rises above a lot of very very similar sort of Heist movie because it's intelligent. There's a lot going on. There's a, there's a poetic nature to it, and that plays out especially in the Pacino De Niro scene, which is 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 at times gripping and at times mournful and poignant. Uh, it's it's a beautifully directed movie and um, with some beautiful performances in it.
1: That Pacino and De Niro coffee shop scene is a masterclass intention tension and setup. Breaks the film up slightly, but sets up everything that's going to happen from that point onwards. And having you know, a career cop and a career criminal just having a casual discussion about what their plans are, and it's just a brilliant moment in the film.
0: Yeah, there's, there's these are two people who are in awe of each other in some way and have a respect yeah. of each other.
1: And it's that that gives it something extra towards a normal heist movie. A normal heist movie would just have them trying to catch each other or trying to outwit each other. This is a, you know, I want I would stop, but I don't want to kind of routine, and it's beautiful, beautiful beautiful scene absolutely beautiful exchange and it's things like that that lift it above the normal filmmaking whenever we watch this this week i now already want to revisit it again
0: and that might be possible because back in 2016 man announced he was delivering a heat prequel but in novel form as part of launching his own company michael man books man stated the novel would function as both a prequel and a sequel with a plot taking place before and after the film's main events. Collaborating with Meg Gardiner with a release date for this year. But there is, and we were gonna mention this in the news, a potential uh, offshoot in some kind of development.
1: Yes, um, it's gone from just being a novel, which is due out next month. So we'll be able to read the prequel and sequel next month to Man seeing the project as a film. He's been speaking with Empire over this past couple of weeks and in his words, it's totally planned to be a movie. Is it a modest movie? No. Is it a very expensive series? No. It's going to be one large movie. And part of the reason for that is the, f- the film Heat has sustained relevance in the pop culture landscape in a way even his other films haven't. It's sustained in culture. It's known. I could delude myself into thinking that the whole world is familiar with it. But when you check out his prominence in home video for over 20 years, this thing really has legs. People are still watching it. People are still talking about it. It's a brand. It's a kind of heat universe in a way. And that certainly justifies a very large, ambitious movie. So his idea is that the prequel and sequel novel adaptation film would perfectly bookend heat itself
0: to turn it into one huge movie. Interesting. If you've not seen Heat, then, of course, and we always say this, give it a go. Reach sure your own conclusions, but it's, it's a poetic piece of filmmaking with some incredible incredibly designed uh, and choreographed uh, action sequences, but this is not an action film. and if we, we do want to watch it, where can we find it?
1: Uh, you've got two avenues to go and watch it on. You can watch it on Netflix or you can watch it on Amazon Prime. And both versions are the 170
0: minutes director's extended version. We'll be back next week with another Deep Dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. And as said at the beginning of the show, Andy and I have both seen, albeit separately, uh, Thor Love and Thunder. I've no idea what Andy thinks to the movie. And Andy's got no idea what I think to the movie. So this is a bit of a first, really, for uh, the film file. Let's see who you are. Get the popcorn out. Let me tell you the story of the space viking. The one and only Thor. Oh. times like this,
1: we need to come together.
0: You said this would be a relaxing holiday. Like a relaxing holiday. But a classic Thor adventure. <laughs> After the events of Avengers Endgame, we now find the mighty Thor getting about the universe with the Guardians of the Galaxy. But Thor is in a so-called midlife crisis. He's got his uh, god body back just in time to battle the maniacal villain, Gore the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale, who is doing exactly that, going round for reasons best known to the plot, killing gods of every persuasion. Into this we bring an old flame, Jane Foster, a return to Natalie Portman, who shows up out of a blue, wielding his old hammer, molinier and going by the name of the mighty Thor. Directed by Taiki Waititi, starring Chris Hemsworth, starring Christian Bale, starring Natalie Portman, featuring Russell Crowe. Um, this is Taiki Waititi's follow-up to uh, Ragnarok, which changed the game for Thor. We had a great start to the Thor series with Kenneth Branagh, it went completely off the rails with Dark World. You now there's bits of it to like, but it was Ragnarok that reinvented Thor, made him irreverent, kind of made him cool, kind of made him a little bit silly, kind of made him very rock and roll, uh, and carried on with this. There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of wild abandonment in this movie, but does it all work? So how do you want to do this, Andy? Should we just talk across each other or should we get into a sense of agreement? I liked it but I didn't love it. I think we
1: might be on the same page. Phew. As a Taika Waititi film, this is everything I expected it to be. It's packed with the irreverent humour, masses of witty dialogue. I had fun watching it, but as an MCU film, it feels somewhat lacking, much in the same way that the recent Multiverse of Madness did. And I think that this is a problem that they're having because they're cutting the films down too much.
0: I said exactly the same coming out, Andy. I thought this runs at just under two hours, isn't it? Yeah. Just one minute or something hours. like that, and I thought it felt it felt uh, exactly the same problems I had with uh, with uh, uh, Doctor Strange. It felt too compressed, too compacted. It needed time to breathe. Yep. It was at times uneven. I think there were two halves to this movie. I think you've got the raucous Ragnarok DNA kind of first half and a much better second half and a very ploddy middle bit. And, and it's... Winking to camera started to get on to my nerves. Uh, I'm I'm all for self-deprecating humour, but at times it, it was running thin.
1: Yeah, it needs approximately 20 minutes of something added in to give you a chance to breathe, let you catch up and make you care. In the same way as Multiverse of Madness felt too rushed and chaotic, so does this film. There's rarely any moment that it slows down. It doesn't let the audience catch up and care for anything or anyone. You're too busy laughing. Let's not bother about like the emotional connections. For years, MCU films have run around two hours, 20 to two hours, 40. And now they suddenly seem to be cutting them back to about two hours, which has taken a serious toll on the pacing of the films. Yeah. The worst element of it for me was that the reunion of Thor and Jane just felt flat. It felt awkwardly flat. I didn't care that they re- like, got back together. I didn't care that they'd met again because it didn't seem like they particularly cared. There was no emotional connection between them.
0: I thought Portman coming back was excellent. I thought she, she gave it her all. She clearly was enjoying herself this time after. Uh, she was largely underused. In yeah, Thor pretty sidelined. Yeah, and I thought she, she stood out. Uh, and, and it's great to see, because I think Natalie Portman can sometimes come across a little bit uh, serious in everything that she does, but she was clearly having fun, as, as everybody was, was having fun on this. Even Christian Bale, even under that ghoulish weird performance that he gives seem to be having a good time delivering that i think tessa thompson came out really short-changed out of it i know there's been lots and lots of people cut from the from the finished one i thought christine bale brought evil with a sense of purpose to the role and i think mm. I'd, i had read that he'd been uh, uh he'd been underused but i, I i'd didn't walk away thinking that. I thought uh, I thought his arc was, was really, really interesting, especially the sort of gore-centric cold opener, so to speak.
1: It, it's fun. I had fun with it. But it just seems disappointing that whilst the TV shows are really smashing it recently with character depth and growth of story, the big screen, Marvel just seems to be going for spectacle rather than actually, you know, emotional connection. And this film, the story in it, and we're not going to talk about any spoilers of the story, but elements of the story should have a really hard-hitting emotional poignancy. But it doesn't. It lacks it. And by the end of it, the only things that I remember, well, generally, the only things I remember is all the dialogue from Korg, who is hilarious throughout. And that's about it. So I mean, me, me and one of my mates at work have been walking around calling each other "bro" all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and what uh, what I'd like about it is it, it, it gave it a reason to be called "Love and Thunder," which I, I thought had a nice yeah. symmetry to it, and uh, and that I enjoyed. I en- I did enjoy it. Don't get me wrong; uh, mm. it's a Taiki Waititi movie, and his signatures all over it. Uh, a great soundtrack, but it felt it felt tempered. It felt it felt subdued in in the way that it, it should have been epic. Uh, there are three big key sequences in this movie. Really, that's it. And the winks to camera, the sort of nodding silliness, started to, unlike in Ragnarok, where it felt like a joy, already yeah. felt overused. Yeah. And I think Marvel have got a problem at the moment. I think Phase Four has been a, a, a disappointment. Been some some movies that you know that we've enjoyed together. I mean, we we both kind of enjoyed Chunky. Eternals shang chi was great uh, i thought black widow was almost nearly one of my favorite marvel films yeah. but i think that some of the big sequels uh spider-man okay spider-man was was its own thing i think it stands out above the rest but doctor strange uh, eternals thor uh have seriously got an issue now where there's not enough meat on the bones and and i think now is the time to make an internal decision if i was these guys and say let's get it back to two films a year three's killing us so it looks like there's going to be a return for thor with the setup in one of the uh two end pieces but uh i think now it's time to go somewhere else with it and do something different i don't think i'm i want to see this thor again and i think that's maybe the joy with thor because you can go anywhere i'd like to see dark yeah. and gritty next time i uh, i'm, yeah. I'm going in a different direction but i don't want to see this this thor again unless uh it's a game changer one more time so it sounds like we're pretty much on the same page yeah it, it was it was a fun blast but it's not something
1: that is going to stick and last with me it's the third best thor film out of four and that's only because dark world is so bad yeah
0: okay i'm with you all the way all right so, what
1: else have you got? Beavis and ButtHead do the Universe, which landed on Paramount Plus.
0: Now, I know what you think about this, and I remember seeing the first Beavis and ButtHead film and thinking it was great. Three minus ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, 0, Ignition. <coughs>
1: <laughs> the earth sucks. Yeah, yeah, wait, wait a minute. I think the floor's not working. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at that number up there on the billboard. There's a two and then um, some kind of circle. No, dumbass, not that number. That one. 69. <laughs> <laughs> this show sucks like just these fat people standing there. I am Portfolio. I need TV for my bunkers. Who are you, fart
0: knockers? Amusing, yes. Yes, yes. humorous, yes. Satirical comment, comment
1: on the time. Yes. Yes. Bear in mind that I'm in a minority here because everywhere online, all over Letterboxd and Critics, they're loving this, but I genuinely don't get it. Now, back in the 90s, Beavers and Bushead went from being an MTV animated series of two teenage delinquents to a successful feature film in the guise of Do America. The pair resurfaced in recent years with a short-lived new series from creator Mike Judge, and Paramount Plus have now brought us this new film from Judge. The pair accidentally burned down their school science fair, but are mistaken to be youths at risk and sent to space camp to get opportunities to grow as people. But they become obsessed with Captain Serena Ryan, believing she wishes to have sex with them, which leads to an incident in space that winds up throwing them through a black hole to the present day. Cue confusion over modern society and tech, whilst the pair continue to wreak havoc everywhere that they go in their quest to get laid. Now, either the humour of Beavers and Butthead hasn't aged well, or it was never funny in the first place, or I've just outgrown it, or I did far too many drugs in the 90s. Probably all of that, to be fair. Uh, but this was a painful viewing experience, probably right. the most painful viewing experience this year. It feels like the story should have could have worked as a 10-minute animated sketch the like of which they used to do before the Mox and Rock videos on MTV but it dragged for a tiresome 86 minutes of what i found unfunny, droll and severely dated garbage fond memories of the show and the movie have swiftly vanished i have no interest in revisiting the old show as a result of watching this film because within the first 15 minutes i found it unengaging and a chore the attempts to be clever with the people from the 90s interacting in a modern world fall so flat because we've seen it done so often and much better elsewhere including by amateurs on youtube who do it so all that's left is the <laughs> and obsessions with getting laid and I just don't find it funny. It tries to steal from Rick and Morty with a multiverse of beavers and buttheads in a council of Rick style aspect and does a very poor job of it. Unless you're 14 years old or simply never grew up or you're still on drugs. This is probably one to just skip. OK,
0: no, I'm um, um, I've got I've got a lot of love for the first one, but I think I'm out based on what you've said, Andy?
1: Just stick with your memories of how it used to be and don't risk this one. But like I say, I'm in the minority because a load of other people are lapping it up and saying it's just like the old Beavers and Butthead. But I think that's the problem. It's just like the old Beavers and Butthead. And that was the 90s. And where do we
0: find this again, Andy?
1: Paramount Plus. So not many people watch it anyway. (laughs) My pick of the week is the Sea Beast, which landed on Netflix.
0: No, nothing about this. I did see it land. Um, I've not seen anything in the way of reviews. So um, tell me, what's the Sea Beast like? For a sailor, a map tells of seas to be explored. Of great reward and great parable. But it's where the map ends. The true adventure begins. It's below us.
1: A hunting ship ain't no place for a kid. You're amazing.
0: I like this kid.
1: Them pictures of me books come to life! For it's out there in the vast unknown...
0: ...that we find who we truly are.
1: Oh. So The Sea Beast is directed by Chris Williams, who co-directed Bolt, Moana and Big Hero 6. He's the latest ex-Disney animator to be poached by Netflix for their projects. They previously snabbed Glen Keane for The Delightful Over the Moon. And he brings us a tale of high seas adventures during mythical time when monsters roam the seas. For hundreds of years, mankind has been sending hunters out to fight huge sea beasts. And the tale starts by focusing on one hunting ship, The Inevitable led by the legendary Captain Crow, voiced by Jared Harris, who has an Ahab-esque vendetta against one particular beast, the Red Bluster. His adopted son, Jacob, voiced by Carl Urban, is set to take over the captaincy once Red has been vanquished. But when a stowaway obsessed with tales of high-sea adventure called Macy sneaks aboard, it starts a chain of events that puts a new reflection on the history of the world that they live in. It's entirely predictable as to where the story will tread, But that doesn't take away from the thrills that the delicious animated feature offers. The animation from the start is absolutely sumptuous. As you expect, it's a not quite Disney look to it. And the sea battles have the impact of the finest moments of franchises such as the Pirates of the Caribbean. The beast designs are creative. Some look monstrous. Some look slick. Some look cute. All thrown into the mix. And if you fail to be impressed when two gigantic monsters start fighting, then you either need to get a better TV or open your eyes when you're watching things. The voice cast are well chosen. Carl Urban's great. Young star, Zaris Angel, Hator as Macy is really selling it. Harris appears to be having a great time as Captain Crow. And the rest of the support comes from names such as Dan Stevens, Marianne Jean-Baptiste and Kathy Burke, each granting their presence something worthwhile. It's an absolute rollicking adventure film that thrills and absolutely engage me throughout. It examines how we cannot necessarily trust the records of history should always question the sources. And I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it to all families to sit around and watch it. It's a great animated movie, perfect high seas adventure. My only disappointment, I wish I could have seen this on the big screen.
0: I've really liked what Netflix have done with their animation. I thought uh, I thought Clogs was was a fantastic and now will be an evergreen Christmas movie for me. And uh, I think they're making some some quite bold and interesting choices. So I will put this one on the list. So Andy, we know that Thor's Out is the big release for this week. What's coming up? What's next?
1: So cinemas mentioned it earlier. The Russos are bringing the Grey Man to the screen. And also, if you want a bit of nostalgia, Railway Children Return gets released across UK cinemas this week. On streaming, Now TV and Sky, Spider-Man No Way Home will be landing this week. And on Netflix, it's mostly TV shows that we've got to look forward to this week. Better Call Saul returns for oh, its final I can't part. Wait.
0: Cannot wait.
1: Uh, the Resident Evil TV series starts this week. Looks good. And then films-wise on Netflix, you got Persuasion, which is a new adaptation of the Jane Austen novel, which sees Dakota Johnson in the lead role. And a film that I will not be watching, even though it's a wholeheartedly recommended film, and that's Anthony Hopkins starring in The Father, which lands on Netflix because this week. it
0: broke you last time.
1: It broke me. I will not be re-watching the film again, but not because it's a bad film, because it's a heart too close to home shall we say i recommend that everyone watches
0: the film and that's about it for this week's film file i hope you've enjoyed yourself thanks for the ride but before we go and yes we always do this we'll give you our neat things stuff that we've enjoyed whether that be a book a film a meal you name it as long as we've liked it and we think it's pretty neat we're going to tell you about it Andy, what's your neat thing? Last time it was video games. This time it's
1: video games again. I've been playing Red Faction Gorilla Remastered.
0: See what they did oh, there? Oh, see, we did that. Funny enough, I was thinking about uh, Red Faction because I remember seeing cheap TV knockoff <laughs> adaptations some years back, which was pretty awful. Anyway, i I don't know why that was in my mind a few days ago.
1: Now, the Red Faction series of games have always had some pretty high regard for the the physics engines that were in there. My my favourite game that ever came out was Red Faction Guerrilla, which took a third-person aspect, and it was one of those ones where once you've got missions to do, it's a very free roaming environment, and you can just go around sabotaging complexes on Mars. And so I decided, what the heck? I'm going to get the remastered edition for the PS4, which I can play on with PS5. See if it still holds up to what I remember from way back in the past when it, I think it was a PlayStation 2 game originally.
0: Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I do remember it on PS2.
1: And I'm absolutely loving it. Remastered engine plays pretty much the same way, it just looks a bit better. They've uh, polished up the graphics more than anything else, but the physics engine is still there. There's so much fun in going around creating destruction with varieties of weapons and slowly upgrading all your kit. You're basically the resistance fighting against the oppressive corporation who are controlling Mars. And you have to take zones after zones after zones. Now, if you've never played the Red Faction games, and particularly Red Faction Guerrilla, if you've played the Mad Max game in recent years, that game was heavily inspired in game design
0: okay that looked good i never played it i always thought it looked kind of neat
1: that was inspired by red faction gorilla not just in look and design but in actual structure of like you know the free world roaming picking up submissions etc and decimation and destroying complexes and because it's so much fun to just throw yourself in it and not necessarily follow the story but go off and do other side things this is a game that i love just picking up and playing for half an hour at a time, and then go back to it when I've got another bit of spare time. I've got a a platinum trophy this one. I know I am, because I know I can complete this game, because I have done multiple times in the past. But it's a great example of a remaster of a game that doesn't damage the original product. And my nostalgia for the original game certainly stood up well while playing it. I'm loving Red Faction Guerrilla, and I thoroughly recommend that anyone picks it up It's quite cheap on the store, or if you've got PlayStation Plus Premium, it's there
0: for free. Well, my neat thing ties into Thor Love and Thunder. I went back over the last week and started reading Thor, the Goddess of Thunder, written by Jason Aaron, I'm a big fan of, uh, illustrated beautifully by Russell Dotterman, just to see uh, where it all started. I'd I'd read one or two of uh, Jason Aaron's run on Thor and thought they were were marvellous. And of course, This was a huge inspiration for the film, not only with uh, um, the Jane Foster Thor, but also with the idea of uh, Gore the Godslayer as well, who was one of his creations. And interestingly enough, there's quite a lot of humour that's made it from the comic uh, onto the big screen. You can see why they chose this particular run, because it it does, does fit in with... Taiki Watiti's almost not quite his version of Thor. He's not quite the dunderhead that he is in, in, in the comics, but he's this is kind of a very much this is not your granddaddy's Thor. This is not Stan Lee. This is not Roy Thomas's take on it. This is a very modern take on it. Uh, but they're beautifully done. Uh, I'm, I'm reading the collected edition. I'm starting kind of late into the series. So I'm starting with The Goddess of Thunder. But it, it's a fantastic read. Uh, Jason Aaron breathes life into Thor, makes him feel relevant, makes him feel up to date as a character. For me, it was never a character apart from Walt Simons' run that I, I ever really enjoyed. I found found it to be very dull. And I think that's always been kind of the problem with with where to take him in the movies. What do you do with him? But in the last couple of years, starting with uh, uh, Straczynski's, Reinvention of Thor, uh, and then um, the great map fractions run on it. Jason Aaron really is the Thor writer. So, if you want to check it out, see where the story started, you can either check out uh, Volume One, The Goddess of Thunder, which introduces us to uh, Jane Foster as Thor, or you can read uh, the Godslayer uh, series, uh, all by Jason Aaron. All look beautiful, all well worth a read. And that, guys is it we're done we're out of here as we melt away into the night <laughs> and pray for uh, just a little bit of relief from the heat but um andy always a pleasure Aye, always a joy good um, to have you back, back up, with us how long are you here yeah, for
1: back up to banbury for the end of the week i've only got a few more well i've got a month left of this backwards and forwards it's flown by actually hasn't it it's uh, 12th of august is my last shift there although i'm fully expecting to get requested to go down every now and then Uh, to help out until they've packed out their team with uh, a full spread of managers. But I'm more than happy to do it. It's uh, it's so much fun down there. Uh,
0: I'll see you next week and see everybody else for uh, another Film File. But before I go, I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Try to stop guys like me.